The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, friends, uh, as we've gathered on this first Sunday of Advent, let me introduce to you our Advent theme. And I'm going to actually call on you first to open up to the Gospel according to Matthew in the New Testament. And then we will make our way to Genesis 38. You'll see there on the screen, that's our preaching text today. But our Advent theme is the women in Jesus' genealogy. So every Advent season, uh, you know, pick a, pick a preaching theme that comes, you know, kind of a pause to whatever we're normally preaching to focus during this preparatory Advent season on uh, appropriate themes. And uh, a group of pastors were discussing, you know, what, what kind of different Advent series are there? And I was seeing the discussion and I was kind of going down the list and saying, well, you know, we've done that one, we've done that one, we've done that one. And I came across uh, this one and thought, that's fascinating. I've never uh, even thought of that one. So that's what we're doing. The women in Jesus's genealogy in Matthew. So if you're going to Matthew, go ahead and go there quickly. And let's just make a few observations by way of introduction and then make our way to Genesis 38. The women in Jesus's genealogy uh, come across uh, kind of jumping off the page at us. So let me, let me just make note here in Matthew 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then reads at verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And then you see in verse 5, another woman, Rahab, and also in verse 5, Ruth, and in verse 6, David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Now, we're not going to read this whole genealogy, but let me say to you that this is deeply significant for ancient Near Eastern genealogical texts to include women because the first century genealogies work by what's called patrilineage or patrilineage, that the lineage is traced always through the father, through the man, would have always accounted through the males, and so to have women listed in the first century is historically unprecedented and deeply attention-grabbing that these women are listed. So we should be asking, who were these women? Why does Matthew include them among so many others who could have been included, right? Like Rachel and Sarah aren't, aren't listed, other women of the Old Testament that we could think of, among so many, why these and why only these? And the first one that we're looking to this morning is Tamar there in verse 3. And to learn of Tamar, let's go to Genesis 38. So come then left with me all the way into the book of Genesis and chapter 38. And as you're turning to Genesis 38, to, we're going to learn about Tamar this morning, let, let me give a few disclaimers here on the front end of this chapter. And the first one is this, that I am genuinely curious uh, how many have ever heard a sermon from Genesis 38 before. Uh, because I would venture to guess it might not be very many. Uh, because there are some people who think that the content of Genesis 38 are not even fit to be publicly read out loud, let alone preached. Nevertheless, here we go. And this is one of these watch your pastor sweat type sermons. Uh, but we also remember that Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture 
Every word of the Bible is breathed out by God and profitable to us. And so that means that even if your sensibilities are going to be offended by Genesis 38, and I imagine some of us are going to have our sensibilities or our manners offended in Genesis 38, nevertheless, the substance of this passage is fundamentally intended to bless and teach us, and ultimately, of course, the purpose of the whole Bible, even this chapter, to reveal Jesus Christ to us as Savior and Redeemer. The question is, is how do we get there? This is why the Bible is wonderfully fascinating, because we are on the lookout for putting the pieces together to say, how does this text get me to Jesus? So, let's find out. Let's first pray and ask God's help and ask for His blessing upon the Word. Heavenly Father, we turn now to You, the God who has inspired these very Scriptures, Your breathed-out Word. And we would confess and acknowledge that not every passage of Scripture is equally clear or understandable, and not all passages of Scripture are equally sensible to our mannerisms either. Nevertheless, all is Your Word. So we pray, Father, that You would send Your Spirit upon us that as... The Word is read and the Word is declared, that the Word is also sealed to our hearts by faith through the Spirit as you illuminate our minds to give us understanding, and to give us faith, and to give us obedience unto Jesus Christ who is revealed here to us. Lord, bless your Word to your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, hear the Word of God, Genesis 38, and we'll be reading this whole chapter. This is the Word of God. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died, When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. For she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. 
She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adolamite to take back the pledge from the women's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at NAM at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. After about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. And she was being brought out. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Amen. So far, God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he write its eternal truth upon our hearts as we see Jesus Christ revealed in this text. So, let's, let's take it this way, shall we? Three views here. First, a wide-angle view of what's happening here. And then, secondly, a zoomed-in view, just at the level of the text, at what's happening here. And then zoom way further out, okay? So a zoomed-out, a zoomed-in, and then a way further-out view of what in the world is going on in Genesis 38. Well, the book of Genesis, in this wide-angle view, first of all, is concerned to tell the story of how God's covenant promises will advance to each successive generation. The story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the lineage of God's covenant promises to each successive generation. And the last part of the book of Genesis, from Genesis 37 to 50, is focused very much on Joseph in Egypt. But just about the time that happens, Moses takes us back to check on Joseph's brother Judah. And uh, Judah is not doing well. This chapter is focused, just like the whole book of Genesis is, on how God will protect the promise of the promised seed to come to bring a deliverer to God's people. How is it that God will protect His promises through each successive generation amidst all of their messes, and there's lots of messes? But how is it that God is doing this? So listen, just think for a moment about this, if you will. Just think if one link was removed from your family history. Maybe generations back, 
Think about the way that generations of families would be altered if every one of us had one generational link removed from our family. If your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather did not meet some cute gal in the German village way, way, way back, you wouldn't be here. Point of fact, right? If that happens in every one of our families, none of us are here. It only takes one generation for a family story to be completely changed. Every link in the chain matters because it took every generation of your family for you to be here. Now think about it this way. Think about the way the Bible tells the story of salvation. It tells it as a family story. That's why Matthew begins with Jesus' genealogy, because he wants you to know where Jesus comes from. He wants you to know Jesus' family story. And who is a part of this story? Well, of course, we already saw that it includes this woman, Tamar. Now, what do you have to say about Tamar? What do you think about Tamar that we just read in Genesis 38? If you paid attention to any of these details, you may still be trying to wrap your mind around what in the world is happening in Genesis 38. And I'll tell you that Tamar is named actually notoriously among scandalous women, she is often included in the Old Testament. But my question is, does she deserve it? Does she deserve to be included as a scandalous woman? You know, typically, uh, Genesis 38 is used in the context of Christian ethics, and the conversation centers around this question, does Tamar sin in Genesis 38 or not? Is she sinful? Are her actions moral or immoral, unrighteous or upright? So before we go passing swift judgment on Tamar in Genesis 38, let's remember a couple of things. One, that we already saw in Matthew, that Tamar is uniquely singled out in the genealogy of Jesus, which is a striking historical fact. And secondly, towards the end of this chapter, Judah, in verse 26, even pronounces Tamar, see it there in verse 26, as righteous, making Tamar the only woman in the Old Testament to be given that direct title. The only one. Very fascinating. So that's the zoomed out first view. Let's zoom in here. And to the moral quandary, the moral quandary of what Tamar is doing here is not a question of whether or not Tamar is a sinner. Now, of course, the answer to that question is Yes. Asking if Tamar is a sinner is like asking if any human being is a sinner. So long as you're not talking about Jesus Christ, if you are saying, is this person a sinner, the answer is always yes. It's like asking, is water wet? Of course, Tamar is a sinner. But that's not the question we're asking. We're asking, are her actions in this instant morally upright or unrighteous? So let me only summarize what's happening here in this chapter, but really point a fact, make an emphasis on what's at stake in all of this and why Moses is telling us this story as an interlude in the midst of Joseph's story. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of course, the lineage of the patriarchs. Jacob has 12 sons. The 12 tribes of Israel are named for each of those 12 sons. And one of the sons is Judah. Judah, we find, has three sons, Ur, verse 3, Onan, verse 4, Shelah, verse 5. His first son, Ur, is joined in marriage to the woman we meet in verse 6, Tamar, and we are not told why, except that Ur was disciplined so severely that he was, in verse 7, wicked in the sight of the Lord and put to death. That means Tamar is now a widow. 
And because Tamar is a widow, there are important realities to be attended to. More than that, though, Judah's family is at risk. Look at what Judah says to his second son. Look again at verse 8, where Judah says to his son Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Perform the duty of a brother-in-law. That makes no sense to our context living where we live. And that's because uh, why the Bible has to be interpreted, you understand, because Judah here knows something about first century families that, that we don't, that we don't live in the context of by any means. And that context that Judah knows that we do not is what is called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage in the context of the Old Testament meant that a brother-in-law of a childless widow was expected to marry his deceased brother's wife and provide children to his deceased brother's name so that the oldest son's name could be perpetuated with the new generation and the family inheritance and the land go through the oldest son rather than the younger. It was the duty of the younger son to provide offspring to his deceased brother. That's called leveret marriage, so that the name of the deceased brother and his property rights could continue. Now, if you want a little bit more detail about this, turn to the right quickly to Deuteronomy 25. Keep your finger in Genesis 38, but let's go to Deuteronomy 25 as we see this reality that the Bible does instruct Israel concerning leveret marriage in Deuteronomy 25, that's on page 166. But look at Deuteronomy 25, starting at verse 5, which says this, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Again, in a patrilineage society, for the perpetuation of the older son's name and inheritance and property, this was cultural duty, cultural obligation. So as you go back to Genesis 38 with this context of leveret marriage, this is, by the way, what lays underneath the whole story of the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth makes no sense without the Old Testament context of leveret marriage and the perpetuation of a family name. Now, we'll get there when we get to Ruth again, but as we go back to Genesis 38 and see Tamar, what's happening here is that the second son, Onan, knows that any offspring that he first produces wouldn't be his own child. And so, knowing that, he denies his deceased brother the opportunity for his name and property to continue, which explains his actions that the text describes. Let the reader understand. But it was Judah's responsibility. It was the father's responsibility to see to this obligation, again, for the perpetuation of the family. And Judah fails to do so. We see that Onan is also laid down, put to death. But Judah is not finding himself in obedience to the Lord. He actually, in verse 11, sends Tamar away. 
Look at what verse 11 says. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house. He's saying, get away from my family, in other words, right? I don't want you to hat trick, kill my third son, basically, is what Judah is saying to Tamar. So he sends her away. He is hiding his youngest son, Shelah, lest his third son perish. So this is Tamar's situation. She is uh, widowed and owed the rights to her first husband's name and property, and she's not receiving it. So she, to be clear, takes matters into her own hands, is what happens. In verse 14, it speaks that she veils herself, and there is some debate among commentators about her intentions, meaning that it was not always the case uh, that uh, prostitutes were only veiled, but they had painted faces, and because the text doesn't say she had a painted face, you could potentially read that she's just trying to veil herself, not intending to promote herself as such, but that's what Judah thinks, so she goes with it. That's how you could read it in verse 15. There is a debate about her intention, but nevertheless, Judah interprets it as such, so again, verse 15, she follows through with this, and then this is what happens, of course. She is pregnant by Judah. Judah doesn't know it, but she receives from Judah something of a signal so that she can prove it. This is what happens then. The narrative goes on. Judah tries to take the moral high ground when he hears that his unmarried daughter-in-law is pregnant and says, let's burn her. In verse 24, Judah tries to take the moral high ground, but then, of course, verse 25, Tamar has him cornered because Tamar, this widow, has no legal redress against her father's-in-law in justice, and she traps him. She outwits him and obtains her right under the Leveret Law and two sons for the house of Jacob. And in the process, of course, she makes a fool out of Judah, shows him to be an unrighteous man, shows up his hypocrisy so that ultimately he was forced to confess in verse 26, she is more righteous than I because it's all laid bare then of what Judah has done and what Tamar has done in deceiving him. So, what is the moral conclusion here? What do we have to say about this? Now, let me, let me try to say it as pointedly as possible that Tamar is, in fact, acting within her right in this context. That is, of course, not to say or suggest that relations with one's father-in-law is approved of because, verse 26, Moses includes this detail, and he did not sleep with her again, to show that this was not some perpetuated, strange relationship in any sense whatsoever, but that Tamar's irregular behavior, behavior in this instance was warranted because of her father-in-law's much greater negligence of morality to fail to obey the law of God. And it was her insistence that the law be obeyed that produces, again, the continuation of the line of Judah through Tamar to the next generation, bringing Judah to his senses. So that is the moral conclusion, as it were, now, you have to decide if you're satisfied with that explanation or not, and you can have dinner table conversations about this later on, perhaps, and I hope you will. But morally speaking, in this instance, she was within her right. So that's the zoomed-in view. Now let's zoom way out, way, way out 
thinking back to how Matthew records Jesus' genealogy with these words. Matthew writes, Judah, the father of Perez and Terah, by Tamar. By Tamar. That's Matthew's little nod to say, you remember Genesis 38? Remember that wild chapter? By Tamar. The point of this is that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God promised that the seed of the woman would deliver fallen humanity from the curse of sin. And the story of Genesis is how that promise will be protected and perpetuated as the lineage continues. That means that Tamar was righteously faithful to God's covenant purposes amidst a generation of unfaithful men. Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Every one of the men are put to shame in this chapter, and Tamar is raised up as a righteous woman, a mother to Israel. And ultimately, as we see the covenant line advance through Judah and Perez, on to King David, through the generations, ultimately to the Lord Jesus himself. Tamar is a great, 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 great grandmother of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's right to call Tamar a righteous mother to Israel and a grandmother to the Lord Jesus. And yet, we can acknowledge this story is an unfettered mess. Is it not? And so is this world. That's the point. This fallen, sin-cursed world in which God has issued a promise that the seed of the woman will come to deliver Adam's fallen race and all of the children of Adam who in their wickedness do all manner of things that make us blush as we read about, but not blush as we commit in our own generation our own sinful acts. Sinners born in Adam, but God is able to use the actions in this chapter to bring about His redemptive purposes amidst the mess. This is the unfolding of God's salvation to reveal Jesus Christ as the Savior of Adam's fallen race. Now listen, would you ever have contrived a plan that included a story like this if you were writing this narrative of redemption? Not in a million lifetimes would you or I ever write a narrative like this in the midst of the whole narrative on the unfolding scriptures of God's redemptive purposes, which makes us step back and go, what a God, and what a redemption, and what a story. Because, of course, Tamar's, let be clear, scandalous pregnancy should remind you of another pregnancy that have would been perceived as outwardly and socially unrighteous, but was in fact the revelation of the righteousness of God. Perceived from the outside as shameful, but God's redemptive purposes, like an unmarried teenage girl, pregnant, named Mary in the first century. And this is the wisdom of God to reveal the Savior to us. Astonishing. And we should say, what a Savior we need, that Tamar needs, that Judah needs, that you and I need as well. And this is the Savior we have. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray. Oh God.
We are silent in one sense before you because we are speechless at your sovereign wisdom. In another sense, Lord, our mouths fill with praise to say, the infinite wonders of your salvation are amazing. So, Lord, receive our praise and help us to confess that the wisdom of God is seen as foolishness in the eyes of men. And what is wise in the eyes of men is foolishness before your sovereign wisdom. So, Lord, continue to reveal your Son to us, even now as we prepare our hearts to come to his table, we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.